Hello, this is Mark Kenyon of Wired Hunt, and you're listening to the audio version of the 100% Wild Podcast, a collaboration between Wired Hunt and Drury Outdoors, in which I, my co-host Matt Drury, and a special guest answer your very own hunting questions. In today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Grant Woods, a wildlife biologist, the host of Growing Deer TV, and one of the country's foremost experts on all things deer. And Grant is going to be helping us answer some questions related to food plots, weed control, and CWD. The insight he offers is fascinating. So stick around, and without further ado, here's our live broadcast from the other day. All right. Welcome to episode number six of the 100% Wild podcast. I'm Mark Kenyon of Wired to Hunt, and with me is Matt Drury of Drury Outdoors, and soon we're going to be joined by Dr. Grant Woods to talk food plots. But before all that, Matt, how are you over there? It's been hectic. It's been crazy, actually. <laughs> and uh, this week has been our premiere week for our new Outdoor Channel shows. So, um, you know, of course, those episodes have been edited for weeks and weeks and weeks, and they've been submitted, you know, the network and closed caption and all that stuff. But it's still it's still a hectic week for whatever reason I, you know I, I I can't explain it but we were supposed to be on the air probably 30 months ago and it's just the way it's going we got interns are out of the office we have guys coming in and out and so we got uh, we just got craziness on our end but that's just kind of a daily life during the summertime in a in a hunting production studio <laughs> yeah it's that time of year you guys are doing all sorts of social media events and premiere watching parties and i'm seeing all this stuff and you certainly know how to keep yourselves busy i'll give you that <laughs> <laughs> i don't know why we do it to ourselves frankly <laughs> so how about you are you still out there out west on vacation with your wife living the dream well i wouldn't call it vacation it's like a workcation. I like i'd say that. i probably work 65% and then I'm playing the other percent. But yeah, we're still out here. We're in Idaho today for the last day. And then actually, as soon as we're done with this, I'm packing up and uh, we're driving to Bozeman, Montana for the next month. So um, yeah, I've been able to fish a lot, hike a lot. And then uh, like I was mentioning a few minutes ago off air, you know, I've got a Montana whitetail hunt coming up this fall. So I'm going to get to do some scouting next week. And I'm pretty excited about that. So uh, I, I, it's fun out here. But I do get a serious itch, you know, not being able to check my trail cameras, not be able to drive around and look for velvet bucks. So I'm really looking forward to that here soon. I'm, I got to say, I'm jealous. <laughs> <You're>, <laughs> I've, I just, just yesterday, actually, I told, uh, I had a couple guys in, in the office and they were sitting in my office and, and we were talking about our lease that we have. And um, I said, you know, I've been trying to get in the mood and in the mode of, of what I need to be doing at the lease, but I can't seem to get away from the office. I haven't, oh. you know, it's, you work through lunch and, you know, I live probably an hour south of the office and my lease is okay. probably 40 minutes north of the office. So needless to say, I haven't gotten out there, but I have, I have all this analogics that I loaded into the back of my truck and I got all these Energizer batteries and I got a couple <laughs> Reconyx cameras that need to get out on the lease and they just, it just hadn't happened yet. So uh, I'm That's feeling brutal. the itch. So I'm jealous of what you're doing out there. That's brutal. So do you have any cameras out yet at all, or did everything have to be put out still? <clears throat> no, I kept a couple uh, cameras on a lockbox out, out on the lease, and um, those those Energizer lithium batteries, it's crazy. Like, 
they they'll last really really long time so i suspect that i'm going to be you know on the lower end of the percentage of, of how much battery life i have left but i'm i'm yeah. guessing that a couple of my cameras are still are still actually working but i want to change out the batteries i want to reposition a few things and and get some of that analogics out there and make sure that i'm prepared for basically that july and august you know the, the final couple months of the growing stages yeah, I love that time of year. I, you know, I love the hunting season, of course. I love shed hunting season. I love all that. But for some reason, that like July, August, you know, some people call it the velvet rut. Like when you start seeing those big velvet bucks on camera or out in the fields, yeah. that I get, I get really, really stoked when that time of year comes around. So I can't wait. Yeah, I'm excited. Actually, it was interesting because we were uh, Mike Miranda. He's our producer for 13, and he was working on. He, I think he's working on episode four or five, just putting on the finishing details on it. And uh, he was needing my velvet reconyx pictures from last fall. And as I was going through them and, and, and tagging them and sending them over to him, I just it just got me kind of back in the mood. It's like, all right, it's it's go time. I know a lot of guys, you know, the Mark and, and Terry's of the world, they think about it and they're doing work on their farms 365, you know, days a, a year. But, you know, I'm more of the weekend warrior guy that's trying to get it done you know here and there and and i think you're probably kind of in that same um mode where you have to balance family life and work and even though it's part of work it's still unfortunately it doesn't it doesn't take the the top rung it's kind of like down here so i I, you gotta balance you gotta balance i'm ready to get back out there yeah i've got a, a serious case of what i call summertime buck fever so uh as soon as I can start scratching that itch, I'm going to be a happy camper. But uh, I think our topic today in our episode today, I think is going to be really relevant and kind of related to that summertime buck fever for a lot of us, because yeah. I know for probably your dad, Terry and Mark, and for me, certainly, you know, we're all thinking food plots this time of year, whether it be stuff we planned in the spring a few months ago or stuff we're going to plant here in August or September. I've, I've already been thinking through, you know, what do I have to get done? I'm, I'm tracking the weather back at my house mm-hmm. in Michigan because I'm a little worried that the stuff I planned in May is getting a, a serious case of drought right now. So it's, it's certainly all on my mind. And I think Grant Woods, our guest here, is going to be able to provide, I think, some pretty helpful stuff for, for you, me, and, and definitely our, our listener who submitted a question. Yeah, absolutely. I think, Joe, why don't you try to call him in? We'll, we'll continue talking. You try to call him in, and, okay. and uh, we'll go from there. But, yeah, I think the drought's the biggest concern. I hear Mark and Terry and just Bill Gadeen, one of our Drury Outdoors team members, he's a farmer, and he's been sending over the weather reports, like the extended long-range forecasts. And mm-hmm. really, he's been doing that since – you know the winter and it's it's not looking good so it's yeah. uh, a little scary i'm hoping ehd doesn't pop back up too hey grant this is joe tierney at drew outdoors we got you live on the air hey joe good to go hey grant this is mark and matt hey grant hey guys how are thank you today you, thank you joe or thank you grant for dealing with our difficulties here today we're excited to finally be able to chat with you now on the air not a problem. I totally understand. I'm well, Matt. Thanks for asking. Good deal. I miss you. I, it feels like we only get to see each other maybe once uh, once or twice a year. It's usually at a trade show as we're passing by to, to go speak to a, a, a partner or a sponsor. So it's always brief. I know. It's a shame everybody's so busy, but that's kind of the, the – someone once said, you know, if you want something done, give it to a doer, and we're all doers, so we're all busy all the time. Absolutely. Well, we really appreciate you coming on. We have, a, uh, I think, a pretty cool question um, related to food plots that you're going to be able to shed a lot of light on. 
Yeah, and I guess with that said, you know, since we were a little bit behind on time, maybe we should just get going right with that question. I think, you know, Grant goes without introduction. I think most everyone's familiar with with who you are, Dr. Grant Woods, and Growing Deer TV and everything you've got going on. So maybe we should just get right to our listener-submitted question, and then we can chat a little bit more about uh, what you might offer as, as far as advice for, for our question with Dan. Absolutely. Well, the, the question of the day is brought to you by Analogics Outdoors. Protect your herd with the power of science. Hey, Market Bat. My name is Dan Spano. Uh, I'm from the big buck state of New York. Uh, we're looking to do some plots, and uh, my concern is if we start spraying these fields, um, the chemicals from the spray is going to start working into the deer system, um, basically tainting the meats um, long term. Um, you know, we thought about doing a burn, um, but logistically for us, it's just not going to work out. But just checking to see if you guys have any ideas or other methods of going ahead and uh, making these food plots rock. Love the podcast. Uh, keep them coming. Thank you. Hey, Market Bat. So what do you think about that, Grant, uh, to Dan's question? is Does he need to be concerned about using chemical herbicides? I certainly agree with Dan that, gosh, I wish all of us could use no or the least amount of herbicide necessary. I think that's a great goal. Uh, just a couple of quick things, guys. You know, there's seven plus billion people on the planet these days, and without herbicide, we can't feed them all. That's just a fact. So, in reality, we got to accept those facts. And we can look broad, kind of broad scale that there's probably not a deer in most Midwestern states that did not eat out of an ag field today, even before we had this radio interview. And, and they've been doing that for 20 plus years now. And there's zero evidence, not one refereed publication of any damage to a deer from herbicide. And that's not just Roundup, which is an extremely safe herbicide, but all the herbicides used out there. So in the old days, guys, late 50s, early 60s, there was some nasty, toxic herbicides used and before the research and all the government regulations and a lot to be concerned about. But after a couple of books were written, a lot of public attention brought to that, and the safety standards were really amped up. Uh, we've had a really clean track record. So I don't think there's any need to be concerned. Uh, the most common herbicide used in a food plot application is, is Roundup or glyphosate. It's ground neutral. It's made spe- very specifically to to limit a, a cell's growth in a, in a certain, certain type of cell in the plant. It has no impact on mammals. It's ground neutral. It doesn't even impact seeds. And, and, again, it's just applied on millions and millions of acres without one single scientific publication giving a negative. So I don't think there's any need to be concerned there. Now, let's go to the positive. There's some great techniques coming out where people are using rollers with, with kind of blades or crimpers are called welded on them at, at very specific angles to terminate whatever weeds or cover crop or whatever crop was there in the past. And so instead of using a herbicide, I think in this technology still emerging, it's not perfected yet, but I look for a day here literally within a year or two where instead of a, a sprayer, we all have a roller tied to our tractor or ATV or whatever with this, it's not just a roller, but the design of these crimper blades. And when it rolls over a plant, it basically breaks it about every six inches and keeps it from growing. And then we can drill seed right into that mulch bed. And that, of course, adds fertilizer and helps conserve soil moisture and provides a great environment for earthworms and other beneficial insects. So 
I think there is some news on the horizon where we can reduce herbicide use and use better techniques. Hmm. Now, in the short term, if for whatever reason he's still concerned, is there any other option? I mean, I know he mentioned he couldn't do a burn. Is there any other option without herbicides, or is he kind of in that situation it, it, where is, he needs you know, there's to... There is the to, old tillage option, but when we till, of course, we use a lot of diesel fuel and other stuff, and that we, we just kind of ignore it because we don't see it instantly, but that pollutant is falling right on the, the ground, and and some of those emissions are way more toxic than herbicides, just way more. You'd rather drink a gallon of Roundup than put your mouth <laughs> on that exhaust pipe and breathe it for an hour. So That's uh, a really interesting you know, way to look at it. I, I've never even thought about that, the things that just are kind of around as you're using your equipment. Sure. You know, and then also just for the soil health, you know, that, that tractor doing the tillage adds a lot of soil compaction. And that means that rainwater is not filtering in as we'd like it to. It's running off, and that's carrying fertilizer and nutrients in the stream or, the, you know, the watershed. And that soil compaction also reduces the activity of earthworms, and the physical tillage kills earthworms. And I think even when I went to school, gosh, I'm getting old, but now we understand how beneficial earthworms are, and it's way more than I was taught in school. I'm one of the first things I do when I go check my food pots is, you know, grab a bean or whatever pulled up and see how many earthworms are wiggling around the root ball down there. And tillage is, is just, you know, like slaughter for earthworms. And not only does it physically kill the worms, but it collapses all their tunnels that allows nutrients to infiltrate and water to infiltrate just to the right level. And that's why, the, you know, the Great Prairie, which was the most fertile soil known to mankind back in the day, it was built by just plants growing and dying, growing and dying, being burned off by wildfire, Native American fire every now and then. But that decomposition of plants and the undisturbed soil structure was what built that great soil. So food plotters, we've all been, myself included, you know, we were all kind of trained by our dads or grandpas or whoever about the soil structure. We want to till it and make a seed bed. That was a common terminology. And it turns out that that tillage and, and changing the soil structure, how the particles relate to each other, is bad. And a natural soil structure that lets water and air move in at the right rate is much more productive. And the good thing so are, is those plant, plants that grow in that environment, this is huge for deer. It's kind of one of my secrets, actually, but huge for deer hunters. Plants that grow on that environment are actually able to transfer more nutrients into them, and therefore they taste better and attract deer more. And that's what we all want. We all want to see that deer broadside 20 yards from our stand. And one way to do that is have better-tasting plants. I think you just gave more information than, I, than, I, than I've known about food. just the, the soil part of food plotting. It, you know, that's, that's really something you don't think about, what the, just like the tractor and the weight of the tractor and the implements and what, what's that, that does to the actual structure below. And, and, and that's something that I've never really heard Mark or Terry talk about. And I, I feel like are really ever even read anywhere. Mark, how about you? Yeah, you know, I've read about some of the things like this. It's super interesting to hear Grant's kind of advanced perspective on it. It's got me thinking more, you know, to your point, Grant, you know, so many of us have just been, it's been ingrained in us that we should be tilling up our, our plots to create that great prepped soil bed, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I even maybe myself could avoid that in some cases. And I'm kind of curious, Grant, um, you know, 
I know in some cases, I believe, you know, with some types of food plots, when you've got really small seeds like brassicas or something, I've heard you can get away with top seeding them, you know, maybe spraying, mm -hmm. killing off that dead vegetation and then waiting for a rain and, and top seeding it. Do you think that's something that mm -hmm. is, is a viable option to avoid needing to till when I'm planting something with small seeds like that? Sure. Uh, we've top seed, frost seed a lot. If you have a really heavy duff layer, you know, if there was a lot of vegetation there, and maybe it's a brand new food plot or was, you know, whatever, Johnson grass or whatever out there and you killed it. Sometimes it's tough for those small seeds to get seed to soil contact without using fire or something to remove that duff layer. Or, or, or if you're a little bit bigger operator, maybe you have a no-till drill that places the seed with seed to soil contact. What we like to do in, in those small areas is we take like a, a backpack leaf blower or even a hand rake and create it's just a really safe fire break around these little small you know a lot of my food plots are little quarter acre hidey hole food plots so i'll manually rake the leaf duff or the straw or whatever back and make a little safe circle and then use fire to remove that that vegetation that dead vegetation of course that's releasing the nutrients instantly into the soil and prepares a great seed bed so you can throw those smaller size seeds clovers brassicas whatever out and I've learned that I, I do that either right before a rain or even during a rain because if you don't, just the reality is turkeys, squirrels, and, and other birds will consume that seed very rapidly. You'll be shocked at how much seed they remove. Wow. Yeah. But a rain amazing will cause it to germinate really quickly. Yeah. Just the rain, rain is, of course, magic for any food pot. So yeah. do that. But so, I think you're, we're seeing a, a big change to this different types of tillage than the traditional just going you know get the rototiller and just till it till it's just like fine flour out there because that flour type soil compacts so hard that when a rain comes it runs off the top versus infiltrating down to where it does the good so this question that Dan asked, it kind of sounds like maybe Dan is, is kind of a beginner with food plots. He's trying it out, wondering, mm -hmm. thinking through these different things, whether he needs to use herbicide, whether he needs to use fire, et cetera. So, so given that assumption, I might be wrong, but given that assumption, is there any other advice that you could give Dan or any other beginner food plots when it comes to that prep stage? Where maybe what are some of the mistakes that people commonly make in this preparation stage? Dan or, or Matt. <laughs> yeah, or Matt. <laughs> You know, I think a really common mistake we all make it is if we are doing tillage, that's just sometimes it's just your only option. You've got a really weedy area, fire for whatever reason can't be used there, and in the first pass you've got to till, and then after that maybe you can use some of these different techniques. And if we do till it, it's often easy, with, especially with small seeded plants like the clovers or brassicas, to get the seed too deep. And and so I like to remind people those seeds are actually living organisms; they're dormant like like a bear hibernating but when you plant it in the soil and it gets warm and wet it comes to life and if it's in that small seed think of it like seed compared to a big old corn seed it has very little energy stored inside it and if it's too deep and it germinates and it's trying to you know bust up through the soil and make a leaf so it can photosynthesize or get the sun's energy it runs out of energy before it busts through the soil and that's why it's so important to either topsoil them, as you mentioned, Mark, or only get them like a quarter inch deep. If we're an inch or two deep, which would be appropriate for a kernel of corn to be planted, but the, the clover seed is so small, 
it has so little energy that if it's an inch deep, it's going to die. It's going to run out of energy and starve to death before it ever gets through the soil. So I think planting too deep or preparing this, again, super soft seed bed that we all were taught in Grandma's garden, and, and then that makes it so easy for the seed to get so deep is actually a negative, not a positive. And that's a real common mistake. What would be, for a novice, a beginner, what would be the, the, the best thing to plant? Is it oats? Is it clover? I mean, what, you know, what's kind of a, a fail-safe, so to speak, something you almost can't Man, I, I got to tell you, my, my fail-safe, which I still use a lot, uh, is, is any of the small grains, wheat, oat, clover, uh, excuse me, wheat or oats, any of the small grains, because they, boys, they will, as you both know, they will germinate in a pickup bed if there's any moisture back there. Mm-hmm. Come planting season, my pickup bed always looks a little fuzzy with stuff growing in the back of it back there. It's kind of disgusting, but uh, wheat, wheat attracts deer well, especially if it's fertilized well. So another thing a new, a new food plot I might want to consider is doing a soil test. And let's use wheat again as an example. Wheat's a real basic crop, and even wheat requires a very minimum of 40 pounds of phosphorus and even more potassium to, to grow well, to taste good. And so a lot of people use that old rule of thumb recommendation, I'm going to put 300 pounds of 10-10-10 fertilizer per acre. And, and they may not know that 10-10-10 stands for 10 pounds of nitrogen, 10 pounds of phosphorus, and 10 pounds of potassium per 100 pounds of product. So if we put 300 pounds of 10-10-10 out, we only put 30 pounds of phosphorus out. And one of the most elementary crops or simplest crops we can plant is wheat, and, and, and wheat's going to be starving because it requires a minimum of 40 pounds of phosphorus. So doing a little soil test and adding the right amount of fertilizer, to me, fertilizer and or lime, whatever your food plot needs, is way more important than the seed. No matter what you plant, get the nutrients in there. And it's not just for a big, healthy crop or a big yield of crop, but deer and other forms of wildlife taste the difference. They want something that's really mineral rich and, and tastes good and is healthy and if the plant is weak or malnourished like you don't want to eat the tomato that's kind of malformed and yucky you go pick that big plump red ripe one to cut and put on your sandwich yeah and the same is true same is true with the deer they want that best pay, they're very selective feeders they want that really healthy stem of wheat not the yellow curly up one so, and an extra bag of fertilizer often meets the difference between attracting deer and and sitting there playing on your phone the whole hunt. So when should you be doing the soil samples and the soil testing? I mean, is that something you just need to do now and then you get the get those tests back or the results back before, say, you know, middle of August or beginning of August? Yeah, yeah exactly. July is a great time for a fall food plot, but the soil doesn't change very rapidly unless there's a massive flood or something. So we soil test our plots once a year. We tend to do it in February because that's kind of a downtime for us anyway. And it's not going to change a huge amount between February and time for spring planting or time for fall planting. So we test them once a year and and see what we need to add, or just as importantly, what maybe we don't need to add, and that saves us money. We're not wasting nutrients or putting too much fertilizer out, and it's leaching into someone's well or into a creek or something like that. So a soil test, you know, you need to get them for free or $7 or whatever, just kind of where you live and where you're getting them done. They're not very expensive. They're the cheapest thing any of us do for a food plot. And and oftentimes in my place, because I've, I've done these for so long, I'll have food plots that don't need any nutrients, and it saves me money versus going, oh, I'd add 500 pounds of fertilizer. Sure. So I look at it as a money-saving tip. 
I was wondering, last year we had planted uh, on this lease that I have, um, it's, it's, it's just north of St. Louis, kind of in the, in the mm-hmm. river bottoms and near the Mississippi. And um, I, we had, I had planted a lot of winter bulbs and sugar beets, but the deer didn't, mm-hmm. hit, didn't hit it until it was like February. Well, at first I kept thinking in my mind, I'm like, I wonder, I did not do a soil test going into it. And I kept thinking, what did I do wrong? Did I, you know, did... Was it when we planted it, should I have put something else, more fertilizer, whatever the case may be? What do you think the case was there, why they didn't hit it until so late? Well, you know, I don't know if there's a couple options. One, was it the first time those particular crops had been planted in that area? It was. And if and if so, deer, deer just have a learning curve. They they shock me to be so bright and able to avoid me in the woods and then so comes to pick sometimes but here at my place I, I, of course I live down by Branson Missouri or southern Missouri there's no agriculture around me at all and for the first two years we planted soybeans I, I really believe in my heart not one soybean leaf was consumed by deer they would walk to the edge of the field and eat the ragweed where fertilizer trucks spilled a little fertilizer over there on the ragweed but they had never seen a soybean before there's not a soybean for miles and miles around they'd never seen them uh, didn't know what they were, and I get you know sometime I guess year three some deer finally said, well heck I'm tired of walking through this stuff I might as well take a bite or something I don't know what happened but <laughs> of course now they eat, they eat it faster than I want them to eat it it's coming out of the ground but and that's the same we see if we plant brassicas in a new area or or any of the any of the bulb producing plants if deer are not used to them they just ignore them until they get really hungry and you know about February the deer on your lease probably got pretty hungry and you know, someone decided to give it a try. Yeah, it was like a light switch. It just went from, you know, they were, you know, whatever, a foot tall or whatnot, and then all of a sudden they were gone. <laughs> I just, yeah. you know, of course it was a little too late for my season, but I just found sure. it I found it interesting. But during the season I kept thinking to myself, should I have planted this in clover, which was what we had last bite in one of the plots the year before, the couple years before, and they loved the last bite. They loved the clover. And I, I just, in my mind, I, I kind of thought, did I overthink this and, and screw up by putting the winter bulbs and, and sugar beets in, or should I, should I stuck to last bite or clover? Well, well watch yeah, out this you know, year, though, Matt, because now that they've got – got the taste for those brassicas and stuff yeah. like that yep. at least based on my experience yep. they're gonna they're gonna hammer them once you get that f- good first frost i i kind of had a similar situation in michigan i started planting brassicas on a property i think five years ago it was the first time i you know probably that someone had done that in that area and it was a little slow that first year but the four years since i can't keep deer out of that once it gets cold and um it's just a dynamite hunting uh, food source now so that said i've got a kind of personal question, not personal question, but I guess a selfish question, Grant, um, as you were talking about fertilizer and lime and stuff like that, one of the things I've been looking at recently has been these new liquid supplements that you can kind of use as a substitute, um, in, you know, in addition to lime or in case of, or in place mm-hmm. of lime. Have you heard anything about these mm-hmm. different things that supposedly can boost your food plot production? Have you tried that? Yeah, we have. We, we've actually done quite a bit of testing with various products and there's kind of two categories. There's one that's a replacement for lime or fertilizer, and then there's another category that's adding microbes, beneficial microbes uh, to the soil. And, and on the lime one, it, it just takes a certain amount of forms of calcium to change the pH. There's just no getting around it. There's no magic bullet that, hey, this form of calcium changes it 50 times faster than this other form of calcium or whatever. So if your pH is not very far off, 
or you need a really quick change that's not going to last very long, some of those products will work well. But if you're, you know, you've got a pH of 5.5, I don't want to get too deep here, but pH is on a logarithmic scale or base 10, so the difference between 5.5 and 6.5 and is tenfold, not one. Tenfold. So, so it would take tons of product to to change that with for any length of time. You may get a you know a, a quick day or two or a week or two change, but we're not none of us are planting a food plot for a day or two or a week or two. And, and so those products you, you need to maybe be a little cautious about. Uh, liquid fertilizer, same. It just depends on how much you need. There's you know potassium and and nitrogen. All these these are elements, just like we all learned on the seventh grade periodic chart and they're heavy and it just takes a certain amount of weight uh, of them literally to add enough for for plants to benefit there's no magic foo-foo dust that changes it too quick now on the other hand and here's some really cool science that's really emerging and coming on strong and again we've all tilled and done things to our soil that that lowered the quality of it and reduced the beneficial bacteria we all have this tendency when we hear bacteria to think of negative but most bacteria is good and helps plants or even helps humans, and, and a few of them are bad. And some of the products out there are just the, the really good bacteria that existed in, in soils before they were tilled and tilled and tilled and tilled. And by adding those or applying those and bringing that population back in the soil, I've seen some, some great results with doing that. I mean, stunning. Now, it doesn't replace fertilizer, but it can sure make a little fertilizer go a lot further. Interesting. And are the, that's available commercially for anyone, that type of product? It is, there's all different names of those products, and and, and 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 I don't endorse any of them. I mean, I, I've used several of them, but it really depends on what bacteria your soil is missing. There's not like a one-size-fits-all. And I think that's where some guys are, you know, you, you hear some guys try product day, and they're going, man, boy, that, that half of my plot where I applied that's a lot greener, and deer always got their head down eating over there, and your other guys say, boy, I couldn't tell any difference, think that's a waste of money. And it may be that they just didn't pair the right product or the right family of bacteria to the species of plants they have growing or what their soils need. So unfortunately, it's a bit more complicated than just go get some Elmer's glue and throw it out there on the field type deal. you gotta, you got to pick the right product for what you're doing. That's interesting to me. Or you could be like me, or you could be like me and buy all of them, put them in a tank, and spray them all out there, and just assume you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna get it covered somehow. Grant in Missouri, you know, you, obviously you know that they, um, you know, they had a couple of positive tests. I'm kind of switching gears here a little bit, but while we have sure. you, I want to sure. I want to get your thoughts on this. You know, they had a couple yep. positive tests for CWD, uh, yep. and, and for instance, I know at Dad's place. Uh, near Kirksville, both counties mm-hmm. that his farm is in, it's one of those split county deals, uh, Scotland and Adair, those are two of the counties that they shut down from all feeding and, 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 and all that stuff. Yep. In your opinion, what does how big of an effect is that on your herd? And do you think that your average guy pays attention to to what the – DNR is doing. I mean, we you know we we follow it by the letter of the law. Ever you know, no matter what state we're yep. in. But I know your average guy out there, he's not as worried about it. And and I've heard statistics from some of the big 
um, supplement uh, companies in the industry that some of the states where no feeding is allowed, that's the states where the box stores sell the most of their products. So in your opinion, what what does it do to shut down those counties where they've had a positive test or had a scare? What does that do to shut down the actual uh, feeding you know, going forward? That's a big old nasty can of worms there, man. Yeah, but let's let's kind of start at the beginning. I got to tell you, my local big box stores. It, it, of course, in Missouri, it's for all of us. It's illegal to have bait out mm-hmm. if you're hunting that property around that area, or whatever. And, and and all summer long, there won't be anything there. And then come deer season, there'll be a, a stack of corn about 44 feet high. You got to have the service guy get a ladder and get from the top of it to get the corn down. <laughs> and, and and there's been seven cases that law enforcement has made for baiting deer just on neighbors that touch my property. Wow. So I agree with you. I don't I don't think everybody's playing by the rules. I do like you, I do. I do A A because I want to and B we'd all be out of a job in this business if we got caught breaking the rules, absolutely. just to be honest. Absolutely. But uh so we absolutely play by the rules, but my neighbors don't don't apparently some of my neighbors don't hold the same standards and it makes it tough cuz we all know that deer are addicted to corn, right? Mm-hmm. I mean it's just a fact. So we're here spending my kids' college education money on food plots and prescribed fire and whatever, and 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 my neighbor can pour out twenty dollars of corn and whip me every time. It's, yeah. it's disgusting, actually. Uh, and so let's take it from the CWD point of view. And I'm very involved in in some CWD research that, that's over my pay grade for sure. But what I'm learning is, and I met with a. a, a the deer state deer coordinator for one of the western states and he was laughing just again being very transparent at wisconsin because their goal was to get the deer herd down some cwd zones to 30 deer per square mile yeah and he told me i mean he just said very candidly me in a meeting said heck our highest cwd rates are in the western part of our state where we don't even have 10 deer per square mile and it's still spreading deer to deer and then i look at it and, and, and none of this is 100%. I wanted to tell our audience that there's more, way more unknowns about CWD than there is knowns. Please hear me clearly on that. And two, that CWD is absolutely a real threat to deer in America. It is not what some people are saying, you know, government caused or a non-issue. That is absolutely unequivocally wrong. It is a real threat. But it's not the sky is falling. We just need to get on top of it. And in some of the western states, specifically northern Colorado, southern Utah, there is a mule deer herd there that's just a, a great Ph.D. study just got released on it, on public land, large national forest land where there's not been any legal feeding or mineral or anything like that. And that deer herd, that mule deer herd, is decreasing right now at 19% a year due to CWD, and unless something drastic changes, it will go extinct. This is over hundreds of miles, not a property, in my lifetime. Wow. In your it lifetime? It will go in, in my lifetime, not in the future, not my grandkids, in my lifetime. Wow. You can't lose 19% of a herd to a disease, let alone predators and other stuff, year after year. Is that hurt? Because 19% of 100 is, you know, different than, than the next year. That's 19% of 81. Yeah. And the next year, you, you see the math. It gets really small really quickly. And there's now herds in Wisconsin that are approaching or are at a 40% positive CWD rate. 
folks that it doesn't take, you know, a Ph.D. in calculus to figure out that herd is in serious trouble. Make no mistake about it. It is in serious trouble. So I am not convinced, and I'm not saying I'm right or wrong, but based on the current science to date, I am not convinced that feeding or minerals it's, exacerbates or, or ramps up the spread of CWD. Deer are very social animals, and they groom, they touch. If you're much of a hunter and you spend much time outdoors, you see deer licking each other, grooming each other, smelling scrapes where another deer has been, smelling where deer urinated, defecated. They're in touch with these bodily fluids that contain the causative agent of CWD. So I put mineral out on my property year-round. I would hate to stop doing that. I would if the state told me to, but I would hate to stop doing that. Let's take that one step further. The big, the reason Missouri is allowing, I'm, I do not work for the state, folks. I'm just telling you what's going on. The reason Missouri is, is taking away the ant restrictions and actually encouraging the harvest of yearling bucks is they tend to move more, have a larger home range, move more than older deer. And deer that have CWD are, are through their urine and feces and, and saliva, can spread that causative agent anywhere they walk, anywhere they go. And, and plants can take that up, and then a deer can eat that plant and get infected by CWD. This is a very intense, complicated disease. If if we bait or feed in an area, the reason people bait and feed is to limit the to see deer and to limit the range size, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, let's be honest. Wouldn't we all keep the deer on our property and not let them be on a neighbor's property if we could? I mean, no one wants to admit that, but, but everyone in their mind saying, yeah, that's the truth. I don't yeah. want that five-year-old bug that I passed for four years being killed on my neighbor's property. Yeah, that's If we're honest, that's, that's what we would all say. So people feed in states where it's legal to do that, or my neighbors feed even where it's not legal. But, <laughs> uh, and so feeding reduces the home range size or can reduce the home range size of deer. And that means the deer that have CWD aren't traveling as far and aren't spreading it as much. So it may be that when we outlaw feeding, we're encouraging deer to move more and may be exacerbating the problem. And case in point, some brave researchers, because when you say, like, when I say this, I mean, I'm just telling you all, I just got myself a boatload of nasty emails. I just just did from (laughs) professionals. I love the deer herd, so I'm going to say what's right, no matter what anyone else says. There's some brave researchers in Utah that just released a scientific publication in the Journal of Wildlife Management, and they're saying, and, and I'm sure they got hammered too, that feeding elk may reduce, not increase the rate of CWD, but may reduce the rate because it's reducing the tra- the, the area these elk are traveling over. I so have, it's kind of I've never heard anyone say this point before. Never heard that before. And all the and all and the conversation not, about not, CWD. Yeah, and it's not proven yet, but it's certainly a viable working theory. Sure. And and, and so it, it's proven that deer and elk move less if they have a good food source that's undisturbed, and we know that. Everyone knows that. Mm-hmm. What's not known is the CWD cuz CWD is so hard to say. There's not a really good live test for CWD. You know, you get a, you know, whatever, you get a tick-borne disease or whatever, you go to the doctor and you get tested and say, well, Grant, you've got Rocky Mountain spotted fever or whatever. We can't do that to live deer with CWD. So it's, by the time we figure out, you know, their head's down, they're drooling, they look like they're on drugs, it's too late then. They've already spread the disease everywhere. Yeah. 
and a and a big problem with CWD is they can have it for you know eighteen months, two years before they show any sign. So they're spreading this disease for two years. Don't we want those deer traveling less? We don't want them. We don't want the yearling buck on my place, and and, and him going a half a county away as he disperses. We want him staying and dying on my place. So he limits the spread of CWD. So. In summary, and I want to be very clear about this, I'm offering to my fellow professionals and, and voters and fellow deer hunters and citizens that let's give these scientists that are willing to try something new, because whatever we're doing now is not working. Mm-hmm. Let's give us some latitude to work with these new theories and see if we can't come up with a better way to limit the spread of this horrible disease. Because they're they're not finding a cure as of right now, there is no cure, right? There is zero progress that I'm aware of. Zero. There's some guys that come out and said they thought they had antibiotic, but when they gave it to deer, the bad news is it kept the deer alive a year or two longer, hauled a test deer, but they ended up dying. Well, that's the last thing we want. We don't want them alive for two years longer and urinating right. and defecating more. That's like sending your kid back to the, the preschool that's got the flu and sending him for five days more. We want to yank him out of there as soon as they got the flu. So what do you think about trying to get the, the overall herd's general health and wellness, you know, their immune system, uh, to be a little more healthier? Is that is that a viable source, you know, a, a viable way to attack the, the problem? I don't, I don't think the way this pro- – CWD is caused by prion, which is a bent, a fancy name for a bent protein. And, and I don't think it matters if you're Grant Woods or, you know, whoever the big super stud heavyweight fighter is today. If, if either one of us ingested that protein or that flu bug, we'd both get sick. Okay. It, it's not like our – there's some type of diseases that if you've got a stronger immune system, you may not get, you know, whatever, snotty nose or whatever. Mm-hmm. With the bent protein, it doesn't work that way. If if you got it, you got it. Well, it doesn't matter, doesn't matter how healthy you are. Your body's not going to beat it up. To that point, it, this almost circles back to the question of the day. Here, he was worried about herbicides and stuff like that. You know, in his in his in his deer and his deer meat when he's eating it. And everybody always says CWD. It, it you can eat the deer and it doesn't affect a human or anything like that. But yeah. I've always felt really odd about that statement. It's like, if this is annihilating the deer herd, how safe can that really be for a human? Is it just, obviously I don't okay, know so, the so science far, behind it. Yeah. Well, or there's, there's been great research on this and, and, and scientists way up, again, different type scientists than me. I'm, you know, I'm a dirt and blood type scientist, not a lab scientist, but, those lab guys have taken this causative agent, this prion, and, and they take mice and they actually put, this is a complicated process, but they put human genetics in a mice. So basically these mice are like, they act genetically like humans. And then they inject this prion right in the brain of the mice. And if they put a super dosage in there and they force it, force it, force it, they can make it jump to the human, but only if they force it, force it, force it. And so the best test case so far is in Wisconsin, in a mandatory check county. Guy harvested a deer where all the deer is supposed to be checked for CWD before it's consumed. And I think his church or fire station or something was having, you know, a wild game banquet. And this is well documented. And so he processed his deer and made whatever, chili or, you know, whatever he made and took it to the, the fundraiser 
and 105 people ate that they've documented ate this meal. This was years ago. And then he gets his test results back, and the deer he harvested and prepared this meal from was CWD positive. Wow. And the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, is following all of those people. And to date, there's not been one iota of a sign that anyone's got CWD. And that's just one case. And then there's thousands upon thousands of people that have eaten deer and elk that are from CWD endemic zones, and there's never been an issue with it. I mean, the sample size is huge, Mm -hmm. and there's just never been an issue. So my family, you know, gosh, I'm a deer biologist involved. I'm some committees on this stuff, and, and we still eat a lot of deer. I'm yeah. going to have deer meat for lunch, actually. We eat a lot of deer. <laughs> it's I'm on the menu for dinner now, over here, to, too. <laughs> yeah. I, I would like to add, if we got time, we'd like to add the two things we can all do. There, there's so much unknown that it's big and scary, but here's two things we can all do. We can all work towards stopping transporting live deer. Stopping transporting, whether it's a state agency restocking elk or commercial guys or whatever, stop transporting deer because, again, there's no effective live test, no practical live test for CWD. So when you're shipping a truckload of deer or elk, you don't know if you're shipping positive or negative CWD deer. And they're urine and defecating and licking and whatever, wherever you release them, they're doing all this stuff. It is super dangerous to risk that for the national treasure of deer and elk. I think deer and elk are a national treasure. Absolutely. There is no excuse. I'll go on record for saying there is no excuse for state agencies or public landowners, private landowners, to ship deer elk until we learn more about CWD. I'm not saying forever and ever, but until we learn more, we got to stop moving deer and elk around. B, hunters like myself, this year I have an elk tag in northern Colorado in a CWD zone. It's a target-rich environment. There are a bunch of elk there, but no old elk. I mean, they told you, if you see a 250-inch elk, you better be shooting because that's the biggest you're going to see. Mm-hmm. It's a fun place. I'm going on a fun hunt with a bunch of buddies. We're not trophy hunting. We're just going to have a good time, shoot some elk, hopefully shoot some elk. It's the CWD zone. If someone kills an elk, we're going to debone it, you know, bring the rack back. If it's got a rack, we'll take the skull plate off. But none of the brain or the spinal column or anything like that is coming back to Missouri because I darn sure don't want to get CWD on my land. Yeah, yeah. So all hunters... All hunters, and because we don't know, you know, Arkansas had no idea they had CWD, no idea. A hunter shot a sick-looking elk last October. They test, fortunately, they tested it. It was CWD positive, so they started doing some more testing, and in a pretty small area, they've now confirmed 92 positive elk and deer. Wow. Yeah. And, and Arkansas wasn't even on the map until a few months ago. So none of us can safely transport deer or elk live or parts of without having a chance of transporting CWD. So, you know, bring the rack back, bring the pelt back, bring the meat back, certainly bring the meat back, but don't move the spinal column or the brain. And guys say, well, I don't want to cape my animal out. I want my tax service to do that. You're risking the national treasure. Cape that animal out, cut the skull plate off, bring that home, and leave the rest of it where you killed it. And, and to your point, Grant, in, I think, 25 states, it's legal 
to transport a deer back without doing those things you just said from a CWD zone or even just a CWD positive state at all. Um, but I, I don't think a lot of people know that. Um, as you know, Grant, I work with the National Deer Alliance and we send out these weekly sure. surveys to, to our membership. And we asked this question I don't know, a handful of months ago if our membership knew about the fact that these regulations were in place in so many different states and that, you know, to your point, you have to debone your meat. You can't bring back a full carcass. You can't bring back, you know, a caped out body, but with still the head and brain and, and spinal column, column intact. That's illegal in states like where I live, Michigan. But a, a large percentage of our membership, and then also kind of casually asked my friends and family, a large percentage of those people just didn't even know about that. So I think it's important in situations like this and elsewhere to, to spread that word and make sure people know, A, the risks of it, and then B, the fact that it's, it's illegal because of those risks. Um, and, you know, it may sure. be inconvenient, but there's a good reason for, uh, for that type of con- concern. Yeah, I agree with you 100%, Mark. It, it is an inconvenience, but it, guys, we're talking about a national treasure here. Yeah, those stats, the 19%, I mean, that's alarming. <laughs> you know, and what's to say? I, I don't know. How quickly are there stats to say, you know, how quickly it spreads yeah, to other states and to other type of herds? Meaning, like, if we found a, a positive case in Adair County and, you know, how, how much or how long does it take for that to then start spreading into the population, you know, years, you know, decades, what are we talking? Well, there's, you know, Arkansas went from nothing to 92 policies, and that's just based on sample. Wait till deer season starts and they get a huge sample. Then mm-hmm. we'll really see what's going on down there. So we don't know, Matt. And, you know, everyone talks about Wisconsin. I would like to give Illinois an attaboy. No one talks about CWD in Illinois, and here's the reason why. You don't hear about it because they – it's in 19 different locations that they know of in Illinois, but it's not. It's less than 1% or right at 1% to 2% in each location. So what they've done, different than this big old countywide, you know, ban everything, kill everything to moves, blah, blah, blah. If they get a CWD positive, they go in a pretty small area around that and, and do try to remove a lot of deer. They do. And, it's, and if it's on your property, it really sucks. I mean, it's really unpopular. But if you're four properties away, you sure are thankful that CWD never made it to your property. And they've done a great job of limiting it literally after 10 years now, 10 years of this cooking, and they're still at a 1% to 2% prevalence rate. And let's take the opposite. We're in Wisconsin. After about 2006, they kind of said, well, we're not doing good, so we're going to stop all this stuff. And now we're looking at counties with 10, 20, 30, even 40% prevalence rate. So I know, and I mean, I make a living off deer. Y'all both know this. And I would hate it, hate, hate, hate. If they found CWD, if I found CWD on my land and they come in here and killed a bunch of deer, it would destroy my income and mm-hmm. just break my heart at the same time. But it's the right thing to do. What said this, legal no, recourse right. What legal recourse is there? So it, say you're a landowner in Illinois and they found a, you know, you t- one of your deer tested positive. Is it the government? Yep. Is it the DNR? What, what is it? What body... Uh, government governing body comes in and says, hey, we're doing this, and, and you don't have a say in it, or how, how does that work exactly? Yep. yep, that's exactly right. Okay, so deer, wild free-ranging deer are owned by the state in every state. They're not, just because they're standing on my land, I do not own them. Interesting. I do not own that deer, and that's true in every state. I do not own that deer. It's on my land, but that deer has trespass rights on my land. The state owns the animal. So yes, it is theirs to manage. They are they are given by that state constitution the authority and actually the demand to manage that resource. 
I bet that is very unpopular in those, but you're right. It's what needs to be done, but it, it, I bet that is very unpopular. I can oh, only horrible. imagine. And my heart, my heart goes out to those people where it happens. And like I say, I sure hope it doesn't happen to me. My heart goes out to them. But that's why it's so important for Lily going back to the basics. Let's stop transporting deer and yeah. let's stop moving carcasses around. Mm-hmm. It makes sense when you break it down to the simplest of levels. That makes That's something that I think anybody could understand the reasoning you know what i mean you don't need a phd yeah. it's it's simple it's simple reasoning yeah, yeah. and yeah, i hope we find a cure but one's not on the horizon right now yeah it's quite it's it's one of those topics that we could talk about for an hour or two just this itself because there's so many questions there's so many um misconceptions out there there's a lot of kind of false advertising out there when it comes to what some people are saying even in the media there's some things i, oh. I kind of just have to shake my head at and can't believe what some people are saying but uh, i'm glad <laughs> that people like you grant are are um you know being focused on this issue sharing clear scientific insight and making sure that we keep the priorities straight for all of us whether it be in a situation where you have something like this on your property where you have to deal with some obviously some negative consequences or if you're in a situation uh, like myself where we don't have it yet where I live and hunt but you know because of the risk we need to take some different uh, some different recourse to make sure it doesn't come so that said uh, we've taken a lot of your time Grant and we are coming up on time here for the show too so thank you first and then before we leave for anyone that wants to learn more about the things we've been talking about or anything else that you're doing you know where could they go online to see what you've got cooking yeah, really to just go to growingdeer.com growingdeer.com. By the way, we just did a, a last week or this week, I guess we did an episode explaining the difference between CWD and HD. I shared that only as education uh, because there's a lot of confusion between the two diseases and they're not alike at all. They're very different diseases. Your, uh, your website is and YouTube channel. You also have a YouTube channel. It's, it's one of the best places to go for a deer hunter to get an it's just an unimaginable amount of information on food plots, on deer health, on overall managing, being a gamekeeper, all those things. Uh, I would highly recommend checking out what Grant has going on. He's he's been helping Mark and Terry out for you know well over a decade now, and we've been par- partnered up with him you know, back in the early 2000s for Wildlife Obsession sure. and, and Biologic, and and uh, really. Yep. A lot of what we do is owed owed to you, Grant, and and thank you very much for all the, still to this day, all the information that you you pass on to us. We really appreciate it. No, I appreciate the friendship, and I wish you all both a, a great fall. Look forward to crossing paths again soon. Absolutely. Thank you, buddy. Thanks, Grant. And uh, for everyone else, two quick updates before we let you go. And we say it every episode, but still worth mentioning again, I suppose. First, if you have a question that you'd like us or our guests to answer in the future, you can submit that actually through a voicemail type app at wiredtohunt.com slash 100% wild. I think you can see that link here on the video version right beneath me. Also then, if you want to watch the video version, if you're not doing that right now, be sure to check out the Jury Outdoors YouTube channel. Subscribe there. And then if you want the audio version, which you can listen to on your phone or tablet, you can go to iTunes, you can go to Google Play, uh, Stitcher, and download and subscribe there as well. So there's lots of different ways to get the show. We've got a lot more to come in the, in the weeks and months coming up this summer and heading into the season. So 
I'm excited for that, Matt. And uh, this was a great episode. Absolutely. I, I think this is going to be one of those episodes that we keep going back to over and over to hear all the information that, that Grant had, you know, had to share with us. It's, it's one of those deals as a kind of a novice trying to learn more, or even a guy like Mark or Terry that, you know, has been doing it for a long time. There's always something you can learn. And I think today's uh, podcast was a perfect, perfect example. There was so much yeah. information there on several great topics. So uh, if you want to catch uh, any of the things that Drury Outdoors is up to, like by all means, like we said in the beginning of the podcast, uh, our new shows are airing on the Outdoor Channel currently. They just started this week. Uh, 13 is on Tuesday nights, 9 p.m. Central Standard Time. Uh, Dream Season the Journey is on at 9.30 p.m. Central Standard Time on Tuesday nights. We call it the DOD Power Hour. And then Bow Madness is on at 9 p.m. Central Standard Time on Thursday nights. And that's all three of those are on the Outdoor Channel. Uh, Natural Born over on the Pursuit Channel airs uh, 8.30 p.m. Central on Sunday night. So just about any day of the week during the third and fourth quarter here leading into the into the uh deer season and then through the deer season you can catch out uh catch up with us and and all the stuff that we filmed last fall so uh we have a really exciting season of tv for you and by all means always check us out here on social media facebook at official jury outdoors and then twitter and instagram at jury outdoors so thank you for joining us as always and we hope everybody is safe in these summer months leading up to the uh, deer season. I echo those sentiments too, Matt. Awesome stuff. Great episode. Thanks to everyone for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Peace.